Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. This is your host, Drew Sample. Um, so anyways, guys, excited to bring this episode to you with uh, Charles Hugh Smith. This is part one of a two-part series. Um, and it's just because we talked for a super long time. We had talked for about four months. So uh, if you aren't interested in hearing about me, tell my story again. Um, him and I cover quite a few different topics on this, this episode. We talk about uh, the first half of the show is about me and making my transition and just stuff that we'd been talking about. Like, kind of recapture, like, you know, Charles and I have been talking for two years now. And so we kind of recapture all, you know, where, what the direction I've taken since our con- our conversation started. Uh, in the middle, we talk about my good friend Joe Green, and he poses a really good question to Charles. So Charles covers that. And then finally, we kind of end off talking about the working class, and then that takes you into the final um, bit of the podcast before we take a little break, and then I I started a new recording, so I'm just going to end it there. It's a little over an hour. Um, Anyways, uh, before we get started, just want to say... If you guys go to naturesimagefarm.com, there's still actually, if you're in the Ohio area, you can still actually put down a deposit for craft forest raised beyond organic pork. Um, also, if you're interested, he now has a nursery. My good friend Greg Burns has expanded his business. How exciting. So, and you'll see all, he has Bocking 4 and 14 of Comfrey, and then he also has some other tree lines. So just use code word sample and you'll save 10%. It's uh, it's quite a good deal. Um, now, if you're looking for some other home setting stuff, you can also check out newfarmsupply.com. And code word sample still actually gets you 20% off. Um, and then finally, if you guys want to become urban farmers or, or profitable farmers and small scale level, I highly recommend Curtis Stone's course. So there'll actually be a link in the show notes where you can save $100 or you can save or um, or you can just do the uh what's it called the payment plan um and then finally uh charles was kind enough to let me share his books again so you guys can still get free if you don't have an audible account you can still get a free uh audio book and start an audible account so both his audio books so both a radically beneficial world and get a job uh build a new career defy a bewildering economy both of those are out on um both of those are free in the show notes so click on either link and you guys can get one of those books for free so i i saw a lot of you on the last episode took advantage of it and people are still taking advantage of it so um yeah guys so send charles a thank you and and that's it check out his blog we don't i don't plug it in this episode so it's of two minds.com you can get that in the mobile version you can get that uh through an app that i use for rss feeds called feedly removes the ads the mobile version charles has actually removed pretty much all the ads but one and or you can just go to his website or um, if you work in an office like i used to you can use outlook as well and with that being said guys enjoy the show have to say welcome to sample hour because i'm going to do that uh in the beginning i was listen. i listen i've been listening to charles and i'm like why do i do that whenever i start a podcast or i hit the record button charles i'm always like welcome to the sample hour but it's like then i do it before because now i have oh. like a now i have like a theme song man a listener made me a theme song the guy uh i i uh, bought my pick from so um so getting started charles before we forget because we uh we've been talking quite a bit uh, before I hit record, we got to start it every time with what we're drinking because this is uh, two beers or more so two drinks with Charles. <laughs> right, right. And I've I finished off my first glass in just our discussion of topics we're going <laughs> to tackle. I, I think you might have already uh, 
looked up this. Uh, this is kind of one of my go-to cheapo wines, um, Grandfather Clock Zinfandel. Um, nice. This is a 2011. So it's um, being a Zin, which is uh, actually from Croatia, but it was uh, it was brought over to California in the 1800s, and it's become uh, it, it, it's it's kind of transmogrified into a uniquely California a grape and it's um it's very it's it's like they call it like fruit forward or pretty pretty fruity uh so it's uh, but it's a heavy it can be a heavy wine uh, but um it can also be kind of fresh depending on the age and everything so i i kind of favor it uh i like kind of uh, full bodied reds um and it, and depending on how old it is and what it was cast in and all that stuff it can be it can be superb and very expensive or it can be like cheap and drinkable like what I've got right now. <laughs> Grand, <laughs> grandfather clock. Grandfather clock. I uh, I don't know how to explain what I'm drinking. Um, <laughs> I'm drinking something that uh, was homemade and uh, it's called brown gas, um, but it's homemade. It's not, uh, it's a liquor and we'll leave it at that for, uh, for, for just legal reasons. Um, no, I'm just joking, but no, it is, uh, it's brown gas. It's delicious. Uh, the guy, the gentleman who made it, he knows I'll let him be appreciative of it. Cause I don't want to put his business out there, but he does a great job. It's delicious. And, uh, he's, he's a listener of the show and, uh, I love him. He's a, he's a friend. And so I want to, I, uh, I got some from him and it's, and I'm enjoying it. So, um, but yeah, so it's been uh we last time we talked, Charles, we were like, Yeah, let's make sure we talk next month. And then uh four months three months later wait, no, four four months later, here we are. And uh <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing. It's like it's like we talked yesterday though, except a lot of stuff has happened. Um got a lot of topics to cover today. And uh so where where do we want to get started? Do you wanna get started with uh with me and what's changed for me? Uh, yeah, I think let's start with that. And okay. then, um, you've expressed, uh, some, uh, some interest in, in my latest, um, blog. topic of, yeah. of uh, exploration on the blog, which is the idea that, uh, that, uh, Trump's support is, um, is a reflection of, of the American, uh, working class, which is well described by Trump's phrase, American carnage. And that's upsetting the uh, liberal establishment's apple cart. And uh, that's that's ex of, of extreme interest to me because nobody seems to be talking about the, the, the working class. You know, that, that used to be something that was part of the political dialogue all through the 20th century. And now, you know, that phrase and that, uh, that conception of, of, uh, of a class struggle in the U.S. is just completely dropped off the map. So um, – and uh, and there is a tie-in here, is that what you experienced, which is um, the loss of your corporate America job and uh, the sort of incubator status of your self-employment, I mean, that's really exciting to me because that's the future of the American economy. Yeah, so, it, and I think, too, I think if we've – I mean, I know we talked and I said, yeah, I think I'm going to get laid off here sometime yeah. within the next two – like I knew it was coming. So I felt good because I was prepared. And man, is it a world of difference between what I'm experiencing and everybody else is experiencing? And like, just with people I talk to, like, you know, I, I, I we were, we were talking about it right before I recorded. And one other topic before we get going is an actual listener wanted me to ask you about something because he owns a small machine shop, and uh, and I'll pull up what he wanted me to ask you because um, he commented on the last uh, blog post of yours I shared. So we'll. Just remind me before we go, or, or I'll I'll remember. It's a, uh, I want to get to his his thing too. So so yeah. So I got laid off, and um, you know it's been great. Like I'm enjoying it. Like I, I you know it's it it was man because when we last talked, I had this idea of transitioning and what I wanted to do, but like I never felt like I could put my best thinking power into it because you know, my best 50 hours a week, were going to somebody else. And now that I have my best 50 hours a week, like my views dramatically changed. Like my views went from, you know, what, I'm just going to scale up with farming, even though, 
I was, you know, not the best farmer by any means. I was still new. I was still trying to, I hadn't even mastered my small yard, which was my original plan when I was starting it. But it was like, I just wanted to, to I, I, I just wanted to get out of corporate America. And then thankfully that decision was done for me. I got a severance and now I get unemployment and everything else like that. And, um, and, and other benefits too. Like I, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with it. But the way I've been handling it is, you know, I feel like I've done, I feel like I do counseling for my friends sometimes. And I don't want to sound like, like narcissistic or conceited because it's, people just don't know what to do. Like, it's like, it's a scary thing if you don't have it. Like I had a backup plan because of what I went through before I started the podcast, not even getting laid off, but just thinking I had a job, quitting my old job and not having one and kind of being up shit Creek, um, and now that I had this, I had this backup plan. I've had failed businesses that I, you know, with the comedy stuff and which I learned a lot from and it was fun to this business that was that, you know, I don't think it's a failed business by any means, but it was still like what, what you said in an, in an incubator. And then it's like, so, so what, so let's, let's really look at what I'm good at when it comes to farming. And something we were talking about is when I got started in farming, there was actually somebody commented on it. Um, in uh, I think it was on our last episode, like or or two episodes before, which was he's you know, what about farmers that don't have sales and marketing experience? Like, and it, and it was actually a good point because I made it sound like you know anybody could just get into to farming and make money, and and in my the way I look at it, they can, but for a lot of people, maybe not. Like sales, not everybody's done ten years of sales. Not everybody has the experience that I have that I've had. So, you know, I was just looking at it like that. Like, what what would be better for me to – because, you know, I'm a big, big proselytizer of small-scale farming and decentralization. So what would make more sense for me? Like, how could I benefit small-scale farming more and actually make more money? Would it be going to my buddy's land and trying to, trying to do all this stuff and, and getting overwhelmed and – and, you know, getting probably biting off more than I can chew. Or would it be looking at this past year and looking at what was I best at? And so what I was best at was I was really good at building rapport with restaurants. I was really good at getting, like, talking to chefs and everything and, you know, having them like me and saying, look, this is what I, you know, this is what I want to do. Like, if you like the stuff I brought you, you want to buy as much as I can sell to you. So, you know what you know in getting big orders quickly like a lot of people they don't apparently a lot of people don't do that but i was quickly and so would it be better for me to try to grow this extra food myself or would it be better for me to partner up with other small farmers and sell that stuff for them and and and, and, and essentially like i was just i just had this guy on um last week uh he wrote this book profit first which is you know really good um and it's just about kind of the way you set up your accounting when you first set up businesses. And it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. But, uh, you know, it, what he said to me was, you know, what you're doing is you're just focusing on a service and providing a service. So I can – so it makes more sense for me, Charles, to go into restaurants and say, you know, look, I know you want local ingredients. Let's say I'm, I, I find all this stuff for you. you. You tell me what you're looking for, and I go out and find it for you. Mainly this first year, though, I mean, that's where I'd like to be. But this first year, though, I'm going to focus on salad mix. Like, I'm going to focus on one product because I, I, I don't – this is still new for me, so I don't want to buy off more than I can chew this year. So then it's like, so, okay, so let me go around town, figure out how much salad, you know, restaurants are doing every – or buying every week and trying to fill those orders. And so so now it's just, okay, let me find farmers. So this was cool. So – I was already, I already knew Joel was Joel, my, you know, the guy that got me into this, he's, he, he has a little over an acre of beds that uh, we made and mainly he made. And then there's another guy I want to connect with who borrowed our, uh, our BCS or our two wheel tractor, um, our hand tractor. And I was looking to, to meet up with him. And then it turned out he listened to the show and contacted me. And then I met up with him and it's, and it's like, now I'm like, it's like I'm doing a few things I feel like with this business is I'm, I'm going to build a community of, of farmers, of people that, that all work together. Like we're, we don't have a scarce mindset at all. We see it as, you know, Columbus is an open – this is an open field. We're going to focus on a, a small niche, and then we're going to kind of go from there. 
And um, so that's that's the game plan then. So for for supplementing income, I just uh, you know something else that I did. So I I just signed up for Uber. Um, and I was worried because I have an older car. Like I paid a thousand bucks for my 2002 Ford Focus, but apparently it still makes the cut. But honestly, like I want to make Uber if I'm doing it as low maintenance as possible. To me, like I mean, a lot of times I don't take my truck everywhere if I don't need to. So if I help someone work. I have muddy boots, so I get mud on my floors, and I don't want to have to worry about making sure every night I go out to do Uber. Like, if I wanted to do Uber, you know, five nights a week, that every night I had to go and clean my car and stuff, and that's just because I'm lazy, Charles. And, uh, but, like, so if I could just do food delivery or focus on the courier service, now I can, you know, I have, like, an, an extra business that I can write off my car and, um and so with Profit First, Charles, what you do, you just basically set up different accounts. So you have like an expenses account. So now I can write off all, you know, my gas and my, um, my any car repair or anything like that. And I just I just use this one account for for that. And then I then I have a I don't know, I've, I feel like I'm becoming more of an adult with how I'm how I'm uh, divesting my my funds because I, I was never really good at that. A lot of times like. I've been trying to get out of the let me spend all the money I have type of um, type of situation that I was doing because I was just trying to invest in businesses or try to do that or try to get that stuff going. So I feel pretty good, man, for a long-winded answer there. I know I was talking for a long time there, Charles, but I, I feel like I, I have a lot of direction and I feel like my mind now, now that, these, now that this time belongs to me, it's easier for me to think about what's going to be best and how do I execute it, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, well I'm um I have a bunch of different responses because um what you're saying is is fascinating uh on on many levels. <clears throat> I'm not quite sure where to start. Um I think I'm going to start with profit first and make the comment that um those of us who have been successfully self-employed, we've learned with sometimes without really knowing what we've learned, right? We just sort of felt our way forward is you have to profit first. It's really true. You can't say, I'm going to start a business and, and if it doesn't make any money, that's okay. Well, those businesses always fail. You, you actually have to focus on making a profit because you've got to have profit to reinvest in yourself and the business and then to, to keep yourself going. You know, yeah. And a lot of people start a business or enter a self-employment situation and they burn out because they're not making enough money to survive and they simply burn out. You know, they just run out of emotional, physical uh, capital, you know. Well, and I see it a lot in, in small-scale farming, too, because it's like people don't want to pay themselves first or they're not – I mean, they don't know how to strategize this. And it, and that's why I want to have this author on is like, you know, make sure you're paying yourself or, or try to only live off this business or – you know what I mean? So it's been um, – it's it it it's been a it's been an interesting thing for me. Keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. I like it. It's better to interrupt my monologue. And so, uh, one of the things that I focused on, you know, my book, uh, get a job, and also uh, my book, like the um, on um, you know reforming uh, higher education. You know, is that we need to teach um, entrepreneurism because what I what I hear you saying is. Um, entrepreneurism comes naturally to you. Like you see a market and then you try to fill it and then you try to put together the buyer and seller, which is what a market is, right? And if it's transparent, like in other words, everybody knows the price, everybody knows the quality of the goods. And um, then then this is what, this is the core benefit of capitalism. And of course, markets in a sense of souks and um, village markets and Trading fairs, they, they go back into, you know, the, uh, the ancient world, right? So it wasn't modern capitalism with, with credit and leverage and, you know, the, the, um, the financial features that we attribute to, quote, modern capitalism. But nonetheless, markets benefit both buyers and sellers, right? And so – but that, that, that comes naturally to you either instinctually or because you have 10 years of marketing and, and, uh, and business acumen piled up right but yeah. for other people it's like they don't know quite where to start and so i i really think you're you're doing a valuable service by by interviewing the author of profit first because that's really what you have to focus on you have to focus on making money and uh, in other words your income exceeds your expenses including your own time 
because your time is not free. If you write that, if you think your time is free, you're going to fail. You know, you've, you've got to pay yourself, even if it's minimum wage, you at least pay yourself minimum wage. But I also want to move on and, and talk about how um, what you're really doing is you're, you're attempting to identify your highest value uh, labor component, you know, your knowledge base, you know, all the things that we that they create value, you know, your knowledge, your experience, your skill set. You want to choose what you're what you're excited about, right? E- emotionally and and intuitively, but you also want to pick um, what your uh, what your highest skill set. And so you're you're. I think you're right. I think one of your high level skill sets is marketing in the sense of putting together buyers and sellers in an authentic way. In other words, and people sense that you're authentic in your enthusiasm for making it work for both sides. And, um, and, and what you're doing is you're avoiding the whole commoditization of farming. In other words, like, yeah, if you want to buy a box of, of commoditized lettuce, uh, from the Salinas Valley or whatever, that's one way to do it. But, um, but it's number one, go it's bad in like three days. <laughs> and it's been on the road for a week and it's comes from 2000 miles away and God knows what is in the water that it was used on, that it was grown with and, and what kind of stuff was sprayed on it. So, and if you want to support your local community, then you, you have to go non-commoditized, which is what you're doing. And, and, and my last point is, you know, the guy behind Alibaba uh, in, in China is this guy, Jack Ma, who is to my, to my mind, my way of thinking, he is a genius in that he's very plain speaking, and um, he's basically done exactly what we're talking about. He's put together a marketplace for buyers and sellers. End of story. And, and that's made him a billionaire because he's uh, made it like a global operation. But he's he started this anti-poverty program in Thailand and in China where he basically – his idea is exactly what we're talking about. He's trying to create a transparent market for people in rural villages who are poor, and they're poor because they have no access to the marketplace. You know, in other words, there might be one one guy that drifts through every once in a while that might buy their extra grain or whatever they have to sell, but he's going to rip them off because they don't have access to a transparent market where they can demand, you know, the highest market value for their goods. And so what he says is, I'm going to I'm going to end the poverty of hundreds of millions of people here by creating a transparent marketplace online, you know, that they can access with a cheap tablet or a, a mobile phone and, um, and they can sell their handicrafts and whatever else they can make of value in their rural village. And it'll be sold for a urban market price, right? Because yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to help them transport that. And so if he takes a cut, Hey, great. You know, the the urban uh the uh the rural uh household was getting like a dime and then somebody else was selling you know uh their their uh, product for like 10 bucks right so if jack ma comes in and takes a dollar but then the rural guy gets 5 bucks everybody wins right because yeah. the ur- the urban seller is still selling it for 10 bucks right 100% markup standard retail but the rural guy is seeing his income go from 10 cents to 5 bucks and then Jack Moss collecting a buck or whatever for for uh, providing the intermediation of the deal, it's a bargain for both sides. So in a way, what I hear you saying is exactly that model. You're going to put together the farmers who um, lack the specialized skill in marketing and, and uh, promoting their, their goods, and then the restaurateurs who don't have time, interest, uh, capability, whatever, to go find these uh, farmers. So you're providing that that necessary marketplace. And and so if and you should be paid tons of money for that, just like Jack Ma's a billionaire, because you're actually benefiting both sides of the trade. Yeah, I uh that's the plan. I mean I, I want to uh I I would like to make good of money doing this, that's for sure. Because I, I vowed to myself to not go get a job. Um, I definitely Good. don't. That's an, that's an excellent plan. That's number one. First, say no. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, just there's, no. they're like, in other words, there's no way no. you're going to take a, there's, there's no way you're going to take a job. You're going to scrape, uh, scramble, um, yeah. you know, do whatever it takes. Yeah. I got, I got rid of a lot of stuff, man. Like I, uh, I've reduced my bills quite a bit. I have to call my car insurance person. Um, 
But again, you know, the whole idea with the Uber thing was, you know, my car insurance is a little bit high because I had uh, have a, I have a couple vehicles, but also it was, you know, I, you know, I have that physical control in my record, and then I got an, a a minor fender bender, which uh, I don't want to dwell too much on that, but it was like, uh, you know, so my insurance went up, and I have like, so it's like, you know. Let's say I can't get this reduced because it's it's you know it's it's one of my heavier expenses, monthly expenses. Uh, I think it's like my second biggest one. So it was so why don't I make that pay for itself? So why don't I do Uber Eats, and that way I don't have to worry about pu- drunk people puking in my car. Um, another reason why I was focusing on it is because it's still new. Like Columbus is one of the few cities that can do it. So Uber's still kind of paying you top dollar to do it because I know. With friends that are Uber drivers that have just told me how much they're, you know, even just not even friends, just talking to Uber drivers, like, yeah, what, what's your thoughts on Uber? And you know, people are pretty open to complain about making less money than what they used to. So, uh, so there's a few things, man. I, I think, uh, you know, if since we've been doing this podcast, I always talked about, you know, make your lifestyle pay for itself. So. I got to do that. Like I got to, I can't just talk about it, man. I have to do it. And that's, that's something else too. That's what I love about the podcast is because, you know, I, I want there to be, a, it's a, it's accountability for me. Like it, it's accountability for me to talk about community and then go and find these, these cool local guys that we, you know, butcher pigs together. And we, 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 I learned how to inoculate logs with mushrooms or they're going to come over Sunday and we're going to tap my maple tree in my front yard. So we learn how to do that because we all know different skills, like old, old timey skills. So let's, let's share them with each other and let's, let's, let's grow together as a community. And, 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 you know, and it's, it's been just such a rewarding thing. And it, and I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing, you know, when, you know, the, the whole thing with this podcast and remaining authentic is if I'm saying stuff and I believe stuff, I have to live it. Otherwise I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, that's, that, that's just who I am in a sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. And I, I think that's partly why um, your podcast appeals to people is people are hungry for authenticity in a world that's BS, right. And, mm-hmm. and, and fake. And, and, uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right about uh, the Uber eats uh, approach because, you know, one of the things we've talked about in the past that I often promote and, and that I do myself, and in fact, it's it's been my um, the godsend that's that's allowed me to remain self-employed is multiple income streams. You know, in other words, like if you can do something and you make four hundred bucks a month, you know, you can't live off that. But then, if you put together like four of those, then hey, guess what? You know, that's um, that's ten, twelve bucks an hour. And then then if you can add a a fifth one or you know, then then pretty soon you're 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 doing okay, and your life is really interesting because you've got all these you know balls in the air, so to speak. And and if one fails, you're okay because you got three other that are still performing okay. So it, it's quite a resilient lifestyle if you can develop a couple of income streams. And so that's that's what I like about your Uber Eats idea. And then you write off the car, which is, hey, you, you, if you want to be self-employed, you have to understand the tax structure of the United States. And that tax structure is if you're in business, you can write off practically everything. Now, you know, you can't like um, travel around the world. Well, you could, you know, actually, I'm, I always have this argument with my wife because, you know, I, I, um, I've been in business so long that uh, – that I think that you can write off almost anything if it's plausible. If it's, if you're writing off something that has nothing to do with your business, then you're exposing yourself to an audit risk. But if it's if it's marginally related, or you can make any kind of plausible claim, like you know you, you you're using your vehicle for your business, then uh, write it off. And then guess what? That's a deduction right off your your uh, net taxable income. And so if you're in business, we all we always talk about before taxes and after taxes and you want all your expenses, you know, to reduce your taxable income. And if you can do that, then, you know, your usable income, you know, the, the, the income that supports your vehicle and your health insurance and all your main expenses, if you can write all that stuff off, then your net taxable income declines. So on paper, 
you maybe your taxable income's twenty grand, but you actually made use of forty five grand, but you wrote off twenty five thousand business expenses, and that's a kind of a summary. And I, I uh, but you know, you you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm still trying to figure all that stuff out. I felt like I knew about it, and then uh, <laughs> I don't know. I've been on a it's quest. Complicated. Yeah, I've been on a quest to find a good accountant, and I think I've I finally found one. So uh, no, I I think. Uh, I think the nice thing is too. I mean, you know, having multiple things like having a having a podcast or a blog, it does help because it's you know, if I use the podcast, now that I've made some money via my podcast, whether it be donations or an affiliate program, um, you know, now when I buy books or you know my Audible account or something like, I think that justifies me at my education to make my show more interesting well that you know that's a, that's a tax write-off now i have a podcast it's this is court this is material for my podcast so i think it, it goes in with uh with expenses for it so I, I think it's uh just a matter of being creative i mean and i think that's why it's important like why we talked about um when we when we first started doing these was you know my whole my whole goal was to, to figure out how to monetize my lifestyle and and that's and that's pretty much it. So, um, but um, yeah, I guess we could we could probably uh, switch things up here. We've been talking for a little bit now, Charles. Um, uh, now, do you want to before we go into the working class? Do you want to cover Joe Green's question, my uh, my man Joe Green's question for you about small machinists? Absolutely. Let's let's jump into that because that's um, kind of sounds like right down the alley of self-employment and marketing we're talking about. Absolutely. So my good friend Joe Green, he's a listener. He's part of uh, the Lumber Squatch crew, is, which is what we call ourselves here in Ohio, Charles. And uh, when I shared that, he listens to the show and he's in our um, he's in our group. And Joe, um, he had asked me. Uh, he'd asked me before because he listened to when I was talking about tools and what, I, if I ever had tool ideas to talk to him, cause he has a, a machine shop in, uh, in like a smaller area of, uh, of, of Ohio, like in a, in an area where it used to be booming, but like, luckily, like, you know, and he he shared some, some stuff with me, so I don't want to put too much of his business out there, but he said, I'd be interested to hear you ask him about what small manufacturing businesses should be doing to prep for the coming automation wave. Right. Well, that's an excellent question. And, um, yeah, there's like multiple answers, but, uh, let me, let me take a stab at it. And, um, on one level, my answer starts that, um, you know, so-called flyover country, like everything between San Francisco and New York that's been um, often ridiculed by the mainstream media that, that exists in, you know, the, the left and right coasts. I think that the boom that we're going to experience in the next decade or two in the U.S. is based in, in, the, in, in the middle of the country. And, and um, the reason why I say that is the, the models of, of um, leveraging some like uh, internet model into billions, which is like the Silicon Valley model, or using the mainstream media and financial trickery, which is the New York, you know, the New York Manhattan model. I think those are, have, have run their course and there's diminishing returns on that. And what, what, where the wealth generation is going to come from is from what the, uh, the, the, the rest of the country is good at, which is growing food and manufacturing stuff that's durable and that, that, uh, and useful. And so, um, and so how do I, how do I justify that, that, that vision? Right. And so, uh, I, I explained some of this in my get a job book and, um, but here's the core of it is that automation is really good at, um, and, and, and robotics, they're very good at, at stuff that can be commoditized. In other words, produced in the hundreds or thousands or millions. And um, in other words, a repetition of some action, either a physical action like, say, uh, soldering a, a circuit board or stamping out a, a, an IC, you know, an integrated chip. Um, 
or uh, fabricating a you know fender you know for a, a vehicle all that stuff can be done again and again and again and so that's the value to uh, corporations of of automation but what automation is not so good at is anything that's a one-off or a small batch because it just doesn't it doesn't pay to like reprogram this complicated kind of expensive robot to make like 12 things or 120 things right and so uh, to make a batch and um, and then batches require a lot of handwork you know like um, and and you see this in Japan as well as in the US you know where there's st- the US still has a tradition of making stuff in batches and 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 um, Joe Green probably is quite experienced in this where he'll get an order for a limited number of parts and then he uh, reconfigures that or makes um, makes that uh, a set of parts and uh, the Japanese are, are also have this old tradition of doing that because like the US they have a, a deep tradition in craft work and um, and and machine tools and and things that um, we're talking about now so When you fabricate parts, you often have to polish them a bit. You know, if they're a precision part, you you can't just like knock them off in a in a in a three D fab. Um, They they still need to be either the 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 rough edges have to be polished off, or if it's a metal part, then it's um, still needs to be polished a bit by hand. So, if it is in fact a precision part for say like a satellite or something, in other words, you can't just knock it out with a 3D, you know, plastic uh, mold, you know, it actually has to fit really well. And so there's going to definitely be a high value on um, non-commodity uh, batching. And, uh, and what's the, the, the beauty of that I see that we're talking about here is the same thing that Jack Moss has done to become a billionaire, which is he's taken Alibaba and he's basically said, Hi, there's a factory here in China that can batch, you know, 2,300 uh, parts for, you know, lighting or something like that, right? And then there's a buyer somewhere in the world that says, yeah, actually, I need a batch of, um, you know, 1,500 of, of whatever it is, bases for desk lamps or something. And then these guys get together and then they pay Jack Ma an intermediation fee. And so... Uh, and Amazon um, has certain features of that, but it's not quite as developed as Alibaba. And I think that uh, that there's a there's a future uh, in America for for more of that. In other words, we've lost a lot of the um, final um, assembly and, and supply chain to China. But um, guys like Joe Green, um, they are part of the supply chain that can come back to America. You know, in other words, where the orders are are from um, the uh, end user, right? Whether it's the uh, somebody assembling uh, parts and they need they need certain um, metal parts to to finish their assembly, and um, this is where I think that the Trump revolution, if you will, even if you hate the man. You know, if you hate everything about him and what he says, and and you see him as a hopeless narcissist, fascist, um, that, no, I'm just yeah, fascist, whatever. <laughs> the thing is, is bringing industry back to America is critical because it's not just the end assembly, like an auto, you know, auto assembly manufacturing. It's all the supply chain that builds that, and so um, that's a roundabout way of answering Joe Green's excellent question: is that um, the, the future lies in creating a marketplace for buyers and sellers in America for the supply chain of the kind of um, metal parts that that uh, guys like Joe are, are able to fabricate in small batches. And that, um, you know, we're so used to thinking that, that if you can't create a million of something, it's, it has no value. But the problem is if you have the machine tools to make a million of something or the robotics – well, guess what? Somebody in uh, Lithuania or South Korea or China or Vietnam can make that too because they can buy the same tools and, and, then, and then use cheaper labor. So the, the, you have to move higher up the value chain 
to what cannot be commoditized. And then that's, that's basically my answer is I see a bright future for guys like Joe Green, but we need guys like you to create the marketplace where potential buyers can find guys like Joe Green and go, hey, there's a guy in Ohio that can make like 120 parts I need for my satellite or uh, my defense industry uh, product or something that I just need a small batch, but it's got to be precision stuff. And so I'm sorry for that long-winded answer, but I'm, no, I'm quite good. excited about this. No, that was a good answer because I had, I have no idea how to answer that question. So you do, though, Charles. So, no, that makes sense. So, I mean, can can Americans get on Alibaba and try to get orders as well? I mean, or is that is it strictly for um, – like it's, it's strictly yeah. for China? I don't know. You know, I've never explored it. I haven't uh, either. And it's kind of like the Amazon shops, but I think there's a – I think there's a, a a crying need for somebody to do a, a completely industrial version of Alibaba for America, and you know some you know Jack Ma might do it for America because he's already got infrastructure, which you know God bless him if he does. But I, I you know of course I hope that somebody U.S. based would would basically steal his idea, yeah, <laughs> and then and then create it here, and and some guy like. Jeff Bezos, who, you know, the Amazon owner, he's a smart guy. I admire a lot of what he's done. I hate what he's done with um, the Washington Post, which is he's bought a mouthpiece for the most corrupt elements of the privileged, protected, you know, elites of the establishment of America. Um, you know, Mr. Fake News, um, yeah. which is like, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times. But um, setting aside what I don't like about what he's done, then, you know, he could do it. But somebody else could could come up and uh, create that, uh, an industrial supply chain equivalent of Amazon that did a better job than Amazon. Because Amazon is, is a commodity business. They're really good at um, aggregating and shipping, you know, hundreds of thousands of units of stuff. But uh, nobody's come up that, to my knowledge, that's that's created a, a really easy to use transparent marketplace for the supply chain that uh, we need to rebuild in America. And it, and it, you know, if you can make money doing it, I mean, if if you could get on a marketplace and go, wow, you know, I can make sixty grand by filling this order, and the guy that's that's paying me sixty grand is saving sixty grand. Because he doesn't have to wait six weeks for the stuff to come from China, and then he doesn't have to quality check it because it's all garbage, right? Yeah. And and half of it is rubbish that he has to reject. If he can if he can count on American quality, and it's delivered, you know, in batches every three days, hey, that's worth sixty grand. No, it definitely is, and that's that's uh that's actually brilliant because. Man, that just gave me a bunch of ideas. Like there really is a huge market of just, you know, find buyers and sellers of of whatever, like whether it be produce uh, or anything. And that's, uh, man, I might well, to, you know, I might have to talk know, to some people before I put this podcast out. <laughs> well, you know, you know, um, Drew. One of the things I find most fascinating about these discussions with you is you're in Ohio, yeah, which is, um, which is a different culture than California and you visited California. So, you know, you know, and, and you had, you spent some quality time here in LA and San Diego. So, you know, you, you kind of know the zeitgeist or the, you know, the, the feel of the, the culture here. And we've talked about this and I've, I've talked to people that live in like, um, Eastern Pennsylvania and, um, and, and people who from California who've, who've moved to, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania, which is in, you know, kind of in your neck of the woods, the upper Midwest. Yeah. And, and, and a largely industrial or was, was industrial. Yeah. And what they, um, you know, that, that a, a lot of places in America, and I don't want to pin any, any labels on any one part of the country, but a lot of places in America have lost that can do attitude because they got so used to living off government contracts, you know, or, uh, large corporation contracts, right, or, or large corporate factories and stuff like that, that that kind of created kind of a plantation welfare state mentality. 
And, you know, I, I, I grew up in Hawaii and, uh, you know, at least my later teen years and I actually worked on a plantation. And I know the plantation mentality, which is the company's going to take care of me. And it's a wonderful thing when it works. But, you know, the time in which a plantation or a corporation could take care of people for 40 years is long gone. Yeah, it's over. And it's over. And so if you that but that mentality and that nostalgia uh, inhibits people, you know, and that what we're talking about is, you know, hey, man, you got to go back to the pre government, pre corporate America state where the vast majority of Americans were self-employed and they had moxie. They had street smarts. You know, you, you find the best market for what you're doing. You specialize in what you like doing. And um, that's how you got, you got ahead is you, you work the market, you know. And so um, that mentality that you have, it's got to spread, you know. And, and obviously guys like Joe Green have it. And I applaud you both and everybody else because that's the future of America is to return to our entrepreneurial roots, you know. And, and not to slam this, uh, you know, the southern states. They have a lot of good stuff going on in in the southern United States, a lot of great stuff. But the, the, the term is Yankee ingenuity. And what yeah. that meant was somebody clever and, it, and somebody who took advantage of, of, of the market, frankly. And, and that's what we're talking about. Man, that's good stuff. That's, and, and, but the thing is, too, I mean, the, I mean and we've, we've talked about it, too, why the boom is going to come back, I think, to the Midwest and everything is because – Man, people can't afford to live on the East Coast and the West Coast. It's too damn expensive. Like, even California. Like, there's going to be an exodus out of California. And uh, I remember I got suckered by this uh, this fake article about it. And that uh, I was like, oh, it's coming. And then I was like, oh, shit. It's like a generated article. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's just there's everybody moves to L.A. because they want to be an actor. They want to, they're going to be famous. And most of them aren't. People go to, to, to the Bay Area because they want to be a tech billionaire, and most of them fail rent for a studio apartments, you know, $2,500. And it's just, uh, I mean, maybe it's not that high, but it's, it's expensive, man. And no, it's, it's $3,000. Holy cow. And it's just so expensive, man. And it's like, you know, I, man, the reason why I'm not worried about anything is because I moved to a place on purpose that was way below my means and it's 600 bucks a month so now you know if i if i would have bought a house like a lot of people i worked with did um it'd be like falling off a cliff man i mean it just would be it's, it's not you know i i i never bought a house because i knew i wasn't in a position to it didn't matter how much money i worked I, to me i wasn't in a position because i was working a job and to me, and being in sales and, and being in telecommunications, which was always, you know, what have you done for me lately, which is just how it is. It's a cutthroat business. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy because I'm like, you know, man, I was right. But then I'm not happy because it's like people that I care about, they're not, they don't think like me. They don't, uh, they don't do that, but there's opportunity. And that's, that's, that's the biggest thing. And I think, the working class, um, to kind of tie this into what we want to talk about next, I, I think the working class is, is starting to see it. And I think, um, and I hope they, and I hope they do. But I think, you know, the biggest thing is, is, you know, what, what we alluded to before is, you know, the, the working class of middle America is the most marginalized members of society. And the reason why is because they're the butt end of every joke. Um, every, you know, so many elitist liberals will say, you know, some guy in the Midwest is just saying this, you know, this is Joe, Joe something from the Midwest. And it's like, man, like, you know, fuck you guys. Like we fucking, we, we work hard. We enjoy our life. Like, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't appreciate it. It was interesting too, because, you know, my dad always been a union guy and he goes, this is the first time ever. But I've been around union guys because I remember I, I went down there to visit him on his job uh, the day after the election. And I go down there and it's like, you know, something like everybody like unions voted for Trump and overwhelmingly. 
And, you know, and people are saying, you know, one guy said, you know, this saw, I think it's going to go down. The people uh, that don't work, Hillary's going to take the lead early because they're going to go to the polls early. And then the people that do work, they're going to get off work and they're going to go vote for Trump. It was like a very simple working class explanation. And people can make fun of the working class, but man, like, if you don't care about them and, and, and even like Obamacare, like what it did to unions with union Cadillac health insurance plans. I mean, the, the Cadillac health insurance plans, they didn't realize that they were going to get a thing called the excise tax and all this stuff. And, and so, uh, I mean, what, I don't know. It's like, what, did, what do you, what did the Democrats really expect? And, and I think it's exciting too. And something Scott Adams has talked about is Trump getting elected not only is going to completely change the Republican Party forever, but it also has to change the Democratic Party forever. So it is going to bring a lot of change, and a lot of people aren't going to like it, and a lot of people, you know, they're just saying whatever. But, I mean, Trump was like a brick being thrown into the establishment from the people that are like, you, if you refuse to represent me, then this is what you're going to get. And that's the way I've kind of looked at it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And and the post um, that I'm going to put up on the blog in a few minutes after after our uh, podcast is saying that, you know, the working class has been completely ignored in America for decades, right? And and everything that the – what I call the neoconservative, neoliberal uh, establishment – and by neoconservative, I'm referring to the neocons. In other words, permanent war is good. But yeah. if we if we look at that, it's like a bunch of Eastern elites sending working class men and women who joined the military because they really didn't have a lot of other opportunity options off to the point of the spear for some stupid, needless war. Uh, but, of course, the liberals and, and, and elites who sent them, they went to Yale and Harvard. Their kids work for the Clinton Foundation. You know, yeah. they, they don't, they're not in the military. No. And so we, we now have an elite that has no connection to the military. And that, that's, that's a completely different situation from like the days of FDR when, you know, virtually all of his sons were in the military. And it was a badge of honor to be in the military. And it was a badge of shame if you had seen, had seemed to be skirting or, or avoiding military service. And so, you know, I, it's another one of these giant, you know, dichotomies that we talk about socially and culturally is, you know, the elites are, are, are happy to um, go to elite schools and, and have elite positions in government or foundations or, or whatever skim or scam they're running. Meanwhile, the working class is, is, is supporting the, the, uh, the voluntary military we have and, and suffering all the consequences of, of, of the elite's policy. But, you know, I think that when, when the elites and the, the, quote, establishment are attacking Trump, as I explain in my blog in detail, I think it's really a proxy attack on the middle class, I mean, on the, on the working class. And, and I, I say the, the working class and the middle class is, you know, where's the line? If you work for a living, you don't have assets that you're living off of. You're working class. You can call yourself middle class. But if you rely on your labor for your income, you're working class. And, of course, Americans like to think of themselves as middle class. And there's been studies that have shown that people that make like 25 grand think of themselves as middle class. And then the middle class goes out to people making like 150 grand. And it's all like, wait a minute. We're talking about like five or six different classes of people here. Yeah. You know? 25 grand, that's quite a bit different lifestyle than people making like 150 grand. Yeah, but, they probably have a college degree and they own 75,000 uh, for their degree that they got a 25 grand a year job for. Yeah, or <laughs> or the 150 grand person lives in the L.A. Or, or, or Brooklyn and they've got student loans. They've got child care for a couple of kids. They got a huge mortgage and actually they're they're kind of poor. They're 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 barely scraping by because, as you say, in these left and right uh, enclaves, uh, the cost of living is so high. And 150k is kind of like you need that to scrape by if you have have kids. Um, so, I, I think the larger point here is um, 
the the working class, the people who built America and 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 actually have skills, um, have to find a way to politically make their voice heard. They have to stop being disenfranchised, and and the establishment is now rising up in in complete rage uh, that the that the working class, and this is my view, that the working class is actually, you know, voted for Trump. Not because they necessarily like the man, but he's the only alternative. In other words, yeah. it was either surrender or vote for Trump. It's that choice. I mean, and, so, and it was like, so what are your other choices? Uh, yeah. Uh, Joel Stein or Gary Johnson, who just turned into an idiot, it seemed like, in four years. And it was just like, I, I felt, I have all the, the conspiracy theorists to me has all these opinions about why the Libertarian Party like I felt like they had so much opportunity going into this election, and it was just such a dud. And and it was like it just was such a dud, man. And it's like so, like it, it was like, wait a minute, you don't either. I was so naive in 2012, which could have been. I mean, I definitely could have been. Like, I mean, I, I wasn't. I didn't have a podcast. I wasn't reading as many books. I, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't doing stuff in business for myself. But man. I don't remember Gary Johnson sounding so such like an idiot. And then it was like it was weird when when Trump first came around. I'm like, oh man, he he kind of does seem like a fascist, blah blah blah. But then it was like I heard that message and I started reading it. And like I started like thinking in my head, and then I heard like it just first I heard it in the the libertarian community, and then I just heard it just gets just preached from you know from from the left, and then. I hear that the Koch brothers don't like him. And then I'm like, oh, that's right. The Koch brothers are the ones that own the Cato Institute. I think they have a lot of stake in Reason Magazine, too. And then it's, you know, and then, like, Donald Trump, he gets, like, I think he's an asshole for sure, but I think he's an opportunist. And somebody said he's a narcissist, too. I wouldn't probably, I probably wouldn't disagree with him. I mean, he's he's been a billionaire most of his life. But at the same time, you know, I, I he's talking about auditing the Fed. He just killed the TPP. I mean, if he audits the Fed, I mean, man, it was really cool when Ron Paul talked about it or when Alan uh, Grayson talks about it. But now it's it's Trump. People are like, well, he's a fascist. It's like, man, this is this is interesting. Or even, oh, you know, he wants to put all Muslims on a list. It's like, you you think they're not on a list? I mean, do you think do you think the CIA and the FBI don't discriminate against Muslims right now and put them on a list? I. I think that's nonsense. I'm pretty sure they do. I, I I know friends. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. I know friends that my my one friend he got he got like a his brother got in trouble online, and the only reason why they caught him is because they were they were monitoring him for the potential of him being a terrorist. So it, it was it was pretty crazy, and, and so I don't. I I just think it's like people put all these things on Trump, and it's like man, like I don't have an opinion of him honestly. Like I don't have a a good or bad opinion. I'm just like, well, this is what we got. Let's see what happens. The working class really like him. He, he does talk to the working class. He, he acknowledges the working class, which is more than Hillary did. It was more than Gary Johnson did. It was more than Jill Stein did. So what the fuck do they expect, man? That's what, that's what the American voters get. You keep electing the same type of people. This is what you deserve. Like in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think you're absolutely right that if we look at, um, like I said, there's in the in the late eight, you know, nineteenth century, you know, the 1890s, the Gilded Age, where you know wealth controlled everything, right? Um, then that that created the union movement, anarchism, and a lot of progressive movements where. Um, you know, like William Jennings Bryan was uh, like into this like free silver thing where they wanted to create uh, a larger base of money uh, using silver that would be accessible to like the small business owner and the regular household, not just the Jay Goulds and, and, you know, the Wall Street moguls. And so, you know, that um, that progressiveness uh, and and interest in, in in political expression of the working class that basically died, you know, from the 1950s on. And yeah. and now you never hear about the working no. class. It's it's only the middle class, which is which is essentially now a a proxy term for the the the, the working class because 
you know, and I, I will I- invoke Marx. And, um, you know, the, the funny thing about Marxism and, and Karl Marx's analysis of capitalism is it's only taught in America and, and, and in Europe as well to, um, to discredit it. In other words, like uh, it's easy to, to discredit Marx's vision because he didn't really have a good replacement for capitalism. But his analysis of what was wrong with capitalism was brilliant, and it's still playing out, which is there's this basically permanent war between capital and labor. And if capital wins, then um, – which it, it, it has now, then labor loses. End of story. And so if you can commoditize labor and ship it, you know, have anything you want made anywhere in the world, then why are you going to pay somebody 25 bucks an hour in America when you can pay somebody else someplace else $1.50 an hour? Yeah. And, and so, and so uh, labor is lost out and labor is the working class. Globalization has, has been a devastating influence on the working class. Uh, open immigration so that you can – have this endless flood of desperate immigrants who will accept, you know, lower pay. That's been a disaster for the domestic working class of all races. And uh, neoliberalism, which means um, opening markets for the wealthy, basically, and, 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 you know, quantitative easing and all these like financial gimmicks that have created, you know, bubbles in, in assets that only the wealthy own, you know, like bonds and stocks and, you know, high-end real estate in Manhattan. Well, you know, the working class hasn't doesn't have those assets, so they haven't benefited from all that stuff. And so, I, I see it as a class war, and and the war on Trump. You know, the establishment and the and the mainstream media's like and tip antipathy or or just like loathing of Trump is actually a loathing of the working class who voted him in. I 100% agree. And I think it's interesting, too. Like, a lot of people that I know that voted for Hillary, um, they'll say stuff like, well, like, you know, all the people that voted for Trump are racist and all this stuff. It's like, I don't I don't think so. I think that's dismissive. It's like when right. people say Trump is stupid, it's dismissive. And it's like, man, the only attacks I've seen, like, brutal, appalling attacks that aren't even being called hate crimes were against Trump supporters. Right. So I think it's, um, you know, it, man, it's it's interesting. And something else, too, that I want to point out, I pointed out, I was talking to some friends last night, was I feel like shit is getting crazier now. And a lot of it, and it's like, it, I, seem, I feel like it's been since 2012 when the NDAA was passed. And the, the you know, the, the NDAA, it was a big deal in the liberty, liberty movement to not get it uh, passed, and then everyone forgot about it because that's what people do with the Internet. Uh, people start putting talking about it on Facebook, so nobody remembers it. Um, it legalized propaganda. So <laughs> I, I, I just think it's, you know, people need to, to learn how to filter their own information. Like people trust CNN and this whole fake news thing. That The nice thing about the whole fake news thing is how it has backfired. Um, but, I mean, all news can legally be fake. I mean, that's that's the issue. And then it was weird. They wanted to start silencing independent media because of fake news. And it's like, man, like, it's 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 super interesting. It's like if you have a different perspective than the establishment, then they're going to try to silence you. And it, it's um, it's interesting, man. But luckily, I think people, people are seeing through it. I, I think the... You know the media. I think only nine percent of the population trusts the media, the mainstream media now, or something, something crazy like that. But uh, you know, you never know. So I, I, my my general feeling from just talking to people. I mean, I know a lot of people watch CNN, or they watch Fox News, or they watch you know whatever news. But I, you know, I, I think a lot of people can smell bullshit. But I think most of the time, people just watch that stuff for entertainment. Man, I think it's a. Uh, which is why a reality star is our president right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, we're certainly in a in a unique era where um, you know the internet has enabled the democratization of information. Yeah, and that's part of what your podcast and my blog is about. Is that. Um, you know, I, I I've, have freelanced, uh, you know, meaning a freelance writer 
in the mainstream media for like a couple of decades from, you know, all through the uh, late 80s into the 90s and early 2000s, I would submit articles and work with editors and all that stuff and get paid like a pittance. And so I'm fairly familiar with how the mainstream media works. And um, as a a freelancer, in other words, I'm not, I wasn't a, a salaried employee, a union employee of the newspapers, but I was a a uh, freelance writer who was paid uh, basically by the piece for a particular article. And so, um, you know, they're, they have a lot of masters and, and that's what people may not understand is, you know, they, 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 although they like to say they divide the um, advertisers from the content they create, the truth is advertisers do influence the content that the mainstream media produces, right? Because of course they do. If, if you're going to slam the source of your paycheck, uh, you know, that's not a very smart move, right? No, you never want to, you never want to bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. And so you're going to like go easy on them or you're going to edit the thing out or, and I saw it myself, you know, it's very subtle. They'll say like, well, you know, I think we need more sources uh, ah, ah, if you're going to critique this thing, right? This like home builders or something that's a huge revenue stream for mainstream media, right? We need homes. We need a lot more homes, Charles. That's for sure. Yeah. We don't have and any abandoned housing in the United States. No. Those 19 million empty units, forget those. <laughs> I got a house for 800 grand right here that, you know, you're going to love. Absolutely. Um, you're, you you – you're going to pick the model too. You're going to choose. Yeah. Anyways. Keep yeah. Going. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyways, they, uh, it's, it is ex- an extraordinary time because I've, I, you know, I'm 63. So I've been around and I've followed politics from the Kennedy Nixon election in, in, in 1960, which was quite close, extremely close. And a lot of people feel that really the mob, um, uh, through the election to, to Kennedy by, you know, having a lot of dead people in, in Chicago, you know, vote Democratic. And there's uh, – you can debate that or whatever, but it was a close election just like Gore, Bush in, in, in 2000. And I've never seen the hatred, uh, which, you know, like as you said, the sort of hatred exhibited or ex- expressed toward the Trump supporters or people who voted for Trump or Trump himself – I've never seen that level of hatred, even of people that uh, like people like Nixon, who was well hated and, and, and the media hated him. And, you know, and a lot of people didn't like him. I've never seen the level of, of hatred that's being expressed now by the mainstream media and the establishment. It's, it's fascinating times, my friend. It's fascinating times. <laughs> 